Welcome to the Mustang Owners Podcast. And now your host, Steve Hall. Welcome to another episode of the Mustang Owners Podcast. Today we're going to go a little, a little different uh, script as far as our guest. Uh, he's made a very important contribution to the museum with his work and his effort and his expertise. And uh, I wanted to share some of that because I think to me it's a very interesting story that I, uh, whenever someone walks in and they say, oh, I was at the World's 1964 World's Fair, I find myself talking to them and asking them to tell us more about their experience, what they saw, what they did. Um, we had one gentleman, he, he had come in, I guess he was probably a teenager at the World's Fair, and he had said, you know, I was very disappointed with the World's Fair uh, area with the Mustangs. And I go, why? He says, they didn't have any T-shirts for sale. And I had to explain to them that the car had never been introduced, and so the T-shirt companies could not make any shirts at that time for the World's Fair. So uh, he goes, oh, he says, okay, well, that makes sense, because my grandma came back, and she couldn't find any either. So sometimes you get some interesting stories. But with that being said, I'd like to introduce Rob Bianco. Rob is a... Um, well, I'm going to let Rob tell you a little bit of what he does and what he used to do and how he got started and his connection with the World's Fair, and we'll then get into the conversation about what he's done for us here at the museum. So, Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I uh, appreciate the opportunity, and uh, I ended up in Florida. I was, I, uh, my career was working in the senior living uh, industry, and so I worked in retirement communities and uh, assisted living and long-term care, uh, retired a number of years ago and decided, well, now what am I going to do? Um, I had developed a hobby over the years or ever since the uh, World's Fair was around where I would build scale models of the fair and pavilions and for various people. And so I decided, well, let me bring that up a, a notch or two and make that my, the focus of my uh, retirement years. And it's worked out quite well, actually. So I guess you could say my story basically started with, as far as the fair goes, um, back in April 22nd of 1964, the Long Island Press uh, front page said, the Long Island welcomes the world with a picture of the Unisphere on it. And here comes this world spare. Didn't know much about it. I saw it under construction as uh, we drove by the fairgrounds on the Long Island Expressway. I was uh, 14 years old, and I think I was just the perfect age to be mesmerized by this spectacular display of technology and visions of the future and all that commercial industry had to offer and and what the future was going to be like so it was quite an experience uh to have the opportunity to go to the fair i grew up and lived on long island just about 15 minutes away so we went about 30 times altogether it was it was just a, it was a great experience for me and one day during one of my visits i wandered into the american express pavilion uh, this pavilion was close to the main entrance, and when I walked in, I saw something the likes of which I had never seen before. And spread out in front of me was a huge scale model of the fair. It was an official scale model of the fair, 
the model itself would have been impressive enough, but then there was a narration and lights and uh, like a guided tour. I was awestruck and I walked out of that pavilion. It was never the same again. I had always tinkered with model kits, just like most kids, but to build something like this would be quite different. So I started dreaming about building my own scale model of the fair in an unfinished room in my home that was in Elmont, Long Island. There's a couple of aspects of this project that fascinated me. The idea that first I would be building something that no one else had or could buy commercially. So everything was going to be built from scratch. I love the World's Fair and this was going to be an opportunity for me to bring the fair home to relive my memories many times over. And the American Express official scale model of the fair would end up being my inspiration. I initially started building some of my favorite pavilions from wood and clay and paper. The unique architecture of the fair made model scratch building a real challenge. I found myself looking at any and all objects around the house and in restaurants and stores, uh, seeing if there's anything that looked like any part of a pavilion. I studied the guidebooks, photographs, researched any information I could find to serve as a resource for my model. However, using wood and clay didn't lend itself to lighting uh, the model up, lighting the buildings up and uh, being able to synchronize the narration uh, with the lighting of the pavilions. But I had an aunt who lived in Manhattan and she uh, had gone to an art supply store and was able to purchase large sheets of plastic, styrene plastic. And that was the material that I was able to cut and reshape and it could be lit up from within. And so that ended up being the material that I uh, used the most and a number of other materials uh, that I would use to whatever I needed to make the pavilion look like the most realistic uh, as it appeared during the fair. No pavilion was original. Uh, there, it was really a lot of trial and error, third and fourth and sometimes fifth generation of building models and building them over again until I could uh, get the results that, that I wanted. So that was uh, built that during the fair, and it was my first attempt at anything like this. I actually had built most of the pavilions. My dad helped me uh, with lights to light up the pavilions. The only thing I needed was the recording of the description. They initially said, you know, let's take a tour of our model so you can plan your day at the fair. Uh, my dad and I lugged our reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, which is all they had back in the day, went across the fairgrounds, got to American Express, got to the model room, only to find out that there was no electrical outlet in the room. I had no place to plug it in. Very disappointed, just wanted to get out of there and go home. And my dad said, no, wait a minute, let's, let's ask somebody, what do we have to lose? And uh, a little bit embarrassed, but before I knew it, we were being escorted uh, to the second floor of the pavilion to a special viewing room of the model, uh, which included uh, speakers and the recording that I was so desperately needing and with uh, electrical outlets. So I was able to get the recording I wanted. 
And while I was doing that, a, a, an employee of American Express asked me what I, what I wanted that for, and I explained it to him. And he said, well, you know, I'd like to come and see that, bring a photographer with me. I said, sure, be glad to show it to you. So a number of weeks later, it, he said, keep your eye on the local paper. And so lo and behold, I was, I was in uh, the Long Island Press on July 12, 1965. It was a picture of me and my model. And I guess you could say that was my 15 minutes of fame, or however long it took for people to see it in the in the paper. Um, amazingly enough, uh, the story didn't end there. Um, about a month after it was in the paper, I got a letter in the mail from Robert Moses, who was the president of the fair. And uh, he sent me the letter, and it just said, Dear Robert, excellent job you did on constructing a model of the World's Fair has come to my attention. I congratulate you on this accomplishment and wish you success in your future endeavors. Enclosed as a World's Fair medallion, which I thought you might like to have. You know, wow, okay, that's all I could say. I was uh, quite impressed with that. Turns out the um, United Press picked up the story and it appeared in a number of newspapers uh, across the country. Didn't know it at the time, but I did find out over the course of years that it was in this paper and that paper. Um, years passed, and uh, my my father, they sold a house in Elmont, and in the process, I had gotten married and lived upstate New York, and so they had to demolish the, the model, the fair, and uh, kept a few of the pavilions that he sent to me, but I said, you know, one of these days, I'm going to build, uh, I'm going to rebuild this whole thing, and, you know, with with another, you know, 30, 40, 50 years of experience, I thought, well, this, if I build one now, it's going to look so much better than the one that I built when I was a teenager. So there, there was a, a gentleman who developed a New York World's Fair website, and he had all kinds of information on there, photographs, um, all, you know, architectural plan, everything you could think of, a lot more information on that website than I ever had when I was actually going to the World's Fair. So this was a great source of information for me. And the gentleman said, you know, how would you like to advertise that you, you know, build models of the pavilions and, you know, and people who are interested could contact you. And I said, that would be wonderful. So he did that for me. And that's where a, a lot of people contact me and said, you know, you know, we went to the fair or my, my parents worked at the fair and we'd like to have a replica of their favorite pavilion or my favorite pavilion. And so over the years, that's how I got in touch with a number of different people about the fair. One contact was uh, a gentleman who was uh, coordinating the 50th anniversary celebration of the World's Fair, they, they were going to have a special exhibit at the Big E, which I guess is a kind of a little mini fair uh, in itself up in New England. And Ford, uh, the Ford Motor Company, was, was going to be one of the sponsors of this exhibit. So they were going to have a presence. So this fella contacted me and asked if I would be interested in, in uh, constructing a model of the Ford Pavilion. Now, the Ford Pavilion what, is quite a challenge to build. It's, uh, it was actually, I think, the largest pavilion at the fair. There were 150 pavilions. But uh, in, in terms of uh, square footage, anyway, 
it was huge. And it was one of four pavilions that Walt Disney had uh, developed for the World's Fair. In this case, though, he wanted to know if I could build something a little bit larger. Up to that point, my model and my pavilions were all built in one 600 scale or 50 feet to the inch. The model that, that I built for the, the Ford Pavilion was twice that size. It was one 300 scale or 25 feet to the inch. And, and it was, you know, like three feet long and it was a good size. And the bigger that the models are built, the more detail that I was able to add. So the model includes uh, people and vehicles and flags and telephone booths and trash cans and all the little things. I, I wanted it to look like the pavilion did at the fair. And I wanted it to be so that the more people looked at it, the more detail they could see. Rob, let me, let me, not to jump in on you, but you're, you're, you're going and telling us so much. I want to jump in and, and kind of get into the conversation a little bit with you because Obviously, uh, what I want, if you don't mind, uh, I hope you don't mind for me just to kind of, no. I'm, I'm going I'm to kind of accent a little bit of some of the things that you're talking about, because when you're talking about the Ford Pavilion, um, I should point out, and I, I want to bring everybody kind of up to speed a little bit, how well, you and I got hooked up. Good. And that is uh, through that website, uh, we knew that we had the opportunity at the museum to have the one of the 12 convertible Mustangs that gave rise at the New York World's Fair uh, available to be on display. They call it 0004. It's a very, very low VIN number, obviously, and it's a, it's a very historical car because it did give rides at the World's Fair when the Mustang was announced to the world. We knew we were going to be able to get this car, and so because of that, we wanted to build a, an exhibit around that. So I had started going online, purchasing things from you know tickets to the event, uh, maps to the event. Uh, I even found a Fred Flintstone's comic book the the Flintstones go to the, go to the world's fair. I mean, go to the world's fair. Uh, really, a lot of neat stuff that was out there. So I'm, and I come across this um, about photos, and I'm trying to find more and more photos. Fortunately, sometimes they want to sell you a packet of 20 photos, and I only needed one photo. I don't need the one for the you know for this pavilion or that country pavilion. Talking to the person, they put me in touch with. They give me the information about you. And we contacted, I contacted you and started talking to you about what we were looking to do because the, the pavilion, as far as the announcement of the Mustang, we feel is one of the central points of when the Mustang came about. The birth date is April 17th. That's when the car, of course, when Lee Iacocca came out and introduced the car to the world at the Ford Pavilion. And we thought, well, you know, people probably don't even, may not even know what it looks like because they're too young. Folks that have went there have, uh, you know, may have forgotten a bit. And so uh, I wanted, what I'm trying to get to is that uh, we're, we have so many people come up and they look at that model and they go, oh my God, that's it. It brings back all those memories is where I'm going uh, with my comments is that, and that's what we were trying to accomplish. And so that was the key to us to be able to kind of share, this is the moment, this is the, like the, the, the moment Mustang became part of the American culture, American lifestyle is at the Ford Pavilion. And so I was hoping to, if you could, just how did you get the information? I know you shared quite a few things with us and we have some things hanging in the museum from you. How did you get come across some of that information, such as the blueprints, things of that nature? Because folks, when Rob does a model, he, he basically, he, he can do it with blueprints. 
And when he's doing that, everything is exact to scale. And when he showed, when we got the model, he was telling me that these people are exactly into scale. The cars are into scale. That's the size of the building. It makes you realize that building was huge. I mean, that building must have been a monster size in real life. How did you come across that information so that you were able to correctly create the exact model? Well, that's a good question. Uh, being uh, listed on the New York World's Fair website, uh, one of my many contacts was a gentleman who also loved the Ford Pavilion, and he was able to obtain the actual blueprints. Uh, I, I don't know how he got them, but he had a full set of blueprints uh, outside as well as inside, and he, he uh, digitally copied them and sent them to me. And then I printed them out, and then I was able to use that uh, in in building the model. And of course, you know, the Ford Mustang was introduced there at the fair, and they they even had two turntable type displays in the in the front of the pavilion, where they most of the time they featured the Ford Mustang, and uh, the the pavilion was was a ride. Uh, through time in a Ford convertible, and the car radio was was where you the narration for the um, the ride came came out of the car radio. Now, interestingly enough, people would wait two over two hours uh, just to get in to the pavilion. That's how popular it was. Amazingly enough, when people got up to the part where you would get into the car, there were a lot of people that said. I want to wait until a Ford Mustang, you know, comes around because there was only, I don't know, six or seven of them. So they would wait longer uh, just to be able to say that they got to uh, sit and ride in a Ford Mustang. And and who could have predicted that over 50 years later, you know, still is one of the most popular cars around. Those cars in the exhibit did not have engines in them. So the very first Ford motor cars that didn't, uh, that were on on display did not have engines or motors. Yeah, let me let me throw in a quick thing for you because you hit a topic I wanted to mention. As you said, the Mustang was so popular, as I understand, for, again from guests who who have been here and telling telling us uh, their experiences, they actually ended up having to have two lines to do that ride. And so this is one of the very first times, because it was the, the ride itself was you know was in you know, designed, engineered, and built by Disney. But a lot of that same elements are now used at the theme parks. There are theme parks all over the world. But the interesting part was that when you got up there, they had one line for Mustang and one line for everything else. <laughs> that was the only way they could kind of get some of that congestion away. Otherwise, you can imagine everything's kind of backed up, backed up. And so this is one of the very first times in Disney, and we've all been to Disney, where they've got two lines, you know, one for a single person or this person or, or a speed pass or whatever they want to call it. This already started in 1964 at the World's Fair because of the Mustang. So I want to interject that little story a little bit because people would kind of get a kick out of the fact that, uh, yeah, Mustang was so popular that people wanted to ride the Mustang. They didn't want to ride the Continental. They didn't want to ride the Thunderbird. They didn't want to ride these other, you know, Ford products that were all brand new and new and unique in a way, but yet, no, got to do a Mustang. So I just want to throw that in real quickly because I think that's something that actually just shows how right off the bat people just had to have a Mustang. Oh, there's no question about it. It was a sports kind of car, sporty-looking car, so it would appeal to a lot of the young people. 
and it was also, uh, I guess, reasonably priced uh, at at the time. It was something that a lot of pe- that most people could afford to purchase, and so it had all of the elements of of being a very successful Ford Motor product. So uh, yes, it it was really something to experience. Um, it's interesting to, that I meet so many people that and love the love the uh, the fair and study it and have a lot of information about it only to, for me to find out that they never went to the fair. They were, they were too young or they weren't born yet. Now I could understand my love for the fair cause I had a firsthand experience with it and, and it meant so much to me. Um, but other people fell in love with the fair simply because of, of what it represented. What it was like a snapshot of, of what our culture and society was at that point in time. They were just fascinated with it, just like there are people fascinated with, you know, studying the Civil War and and other historical events. So there are a lot of people that that you know like the fair and love the fair and study the fair, uh, including people who never even had the opportunity to go. Well, let me ask this then, because uh, I'm gonna go back. I do want to go back if we could to the pavilion itself, because as everybody knows, we have the model that you built. But as I look at this, I just marvel at just the the intricacy of the model itself. How you've done that? I mean, it's just this. It's like it's almost like you, what was on that blueprint. You turned it into 3D, and it's, to me, I look at that every time I look at it. I just I always find myself staring at it for a few minutes because I mean, you you even have little you know have well everything like you mentioned there is is in place. But how long does it take to put something to the, like this together? How do you come across? And decide what materials are needed. What's the process? If you don't mind, just to share a little bit of that insight of the actual build of the Ford Pavilion. Sure. Well, again, a lot of it over the years has been trial and error. So it's mostly styrene plastic, which you could buy in sheets, and it's easily cut and and shaped. Um, other things that are made out of cardstock. Now the the rotunda of the building is is very unique. It had uh, 64 100 foot tall pylons uh, that surrounded, and they were a very unique shape. Probably very difficult to model because they not only curved as they got higher, but they got smaller in width. So in one 300 scale, if you really want to accurately show the detail, that took a lot of time. This model that you're referring to probably took a year or more to actually build. Another challenge was there were these two glass enclosed tubes that once you got into the car, uh, it would then travel through a glass tube that circled the rotunda and then went into the main body of the pavilion. So I was able to actually find one 300 scale convertible cars. They, they, <laughs> and so I, and then I was able to put the people inside of those cars. So if you if you look really close, you could see the cars as they traveled through the um, glass tubes, and uh, they're all convertibles, and they have people in them. The landscaping was was interesting. Again, as probably hundreds of photographs from every conceivable angle, and also aerial photographs were very, very helpful. 
And since Ford was the largest pavilion and probably the most popular, one of the most popular exhibits, there wasn't a shortage of, of photographs that people had taken. There was another thing on there that, that sometimes the fair uh, dated itself, and there were two things that uh, dated it. In 1964, the Greyhound that handled the interfair transportation had something called a personal escorter. And this was a four-passenger vehicle that uh, transported visitors around uh, to wherever they wanted to go. But, you, you know, it, was, it wasn't cheap back in the day, even then. Uh, for some reason, they, they didn't operate as well as they, I guess, that they envisioned it would, and they had problems with them. And so in 1965, the personal escorters for, uh, just disappeared. They were not at the fair. So when you're looking at photographs, you can tell whether it was the first year, 64, or the second year, 65, at whether or not they had personal escorters in it. The Ford Pavilion also had on either side of the main building um, a booth, a badge, Ford Motors badge booth. And you would go up to that booth and you would tell the, the, um, the person there what state you were born in. And they had these uh, little Ford Motor badges, a uh, replica of the pavilion, and you could get one that had your state in, in it. And th then they, they also glowed in the dark. It was one of those things that, you know, if you put it under a light, it would glow. Now, in 1965, those boots disappeared for whatever reason, I don't know, and they were replaced with other vehicles that Ford manufactured, like tractors and and other types of vehicles that, that just showed up in the place where those booths were. I kind of built my models um, to reflect the 1964 version of the fair because I felt like that was that was how it was originally designed. That's uh, that's how it when it opened. That's what it looked like. And so there were changes in '65, but I I kind of stuck to uh, what it looked like. And that's what I was going for. I wanted, it wasn't an architectural model that sometimes they're built before the building is even built. And then it doesn't really look like it. So I wanted my models to look as much like the real pavilion uh, that I possibly could. That was my goal and my objective. And I'm very proud of the Ford Motor model pavilion from the fair. I put a lot of work into it. I think it came out well. And I'm so glad that you were able to use it in your Ford uh, Mustang Museum. That's uh, for a model maker. That's the ultimate compliment is to have your work on display and where people could enjoy it. And so, Steve, I want to thank you for for giving me that opportunity, and that it's even after all these years, it's still being enjoyed. So, thank you for that. My my pleasure, Rob. The the guests I do come. Uh, especially those that had uh, had had the chance to go to the World's Fair, they find themselves almost going back in time a bit. And uh, for them to see the model, it makes them realize, you know, like you said, how the ride was itself. You know, how you had a moving sidewalks, you had uh, the the cars going up on the tube. Uh, and when you see, you see those things, a lot of those things are reminiscent of what you now see at Disney. And uh, so it, it's uh, it's something that I know that resonates because it is the first time, like you said, you know, Mustang was introduced to everybody. 
And uh, so it's a, it is an important part of what we have. And we've been very fortunate that the owner of the Mustang, normally they never take it out and take it to shows. They just don't travel with it. It's just too iconic, I guess, is maybe is the way to put it. They've been very pleased that we have it, able to share it with our guests. And then they see all the pieces that we put with it, such as the display of the pavilion, uh, some of the uh, blueprints we've blown up and put on the walls. We even had that street sign that you uh, that you gave us uh, about, yeah. you know, World's Fair. So they had some nice pieces to it. And every once in a while, somebody will come around with some other little nice piece that we'll put in our display cabinet from the World's Fair. Because uh, And you're right, those little, those little badges right now are uh, on eBay uh, for, with the different states on it. And uh, they're not cheap. They're not cheap, but they're a cool little <laughs> keepsake. So I, I can appreciate when people, why people wanted to have those and such. And so I have one last question for you, Rob. When are you going to build me one that shows me the inside of the Ford Pavilion? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> that would be a little tougher, I imagine. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I've been asked that uh, a couple of times before. You know that I that I ever build a model where you you know you could take the roof off or open it up or show it mm -hmm. on the inside. I never have, um, not that I haven't been tempted to do that. The Travelers Insurance uh, Pavilion, their their architectural model did do that. The the red umbrella roof lifted off, and you and you were able to see what the ride looked like. Yeah, that that certainly would be a challenge to to do that for the Ford Motor Pavilion. So I don't know. I, you know. Well, I have I have been fortunate. I have found some video. It's black and white, and as you imagine, it's it's aged a little bit of the ride itself. Uh, so there is there is some video. Um, and I guess back in the day they called it more or less. It was a movie, eight millimeter type of a little movie, uh, showing the ride a bit. But I always kind of look at that because. It's almost the the ride itself, the build. I'm sorry, the pavilion itself is is actually two pieces. One is the Disney ride, which is in the long, big, square kind of rectangular part portion of the uh, of the pavilion, and then where you have the rotunda, that's where they actually have cars on display, Mustangs on display, other Ford vehicles on display, and that's of course where you would go and go through the process and the lines to get up to the ride, to the level to take the ride into the pavilion itself. But uh, so it's almost like there's two separate pieces. So I see photos of uh, the Ford display, and then I've seen some video of the Disney ride. And you look at it and say, you know, it'd be nice if, you know, if, if there was anybody had a photo that kind of show how the, how they kind of lined together and, the con and give you a better context of how that was done. Because obviously, it was a very. I had. You have to think it had to be a very, very expensive process, but again, for t it was. Uh, you know, it was. You know, it was, the World's Fair was for two years, and interestingly, uh, Ford always had determined that the Mustang would be introduced at the World's Fair. That was something they started two years even prior to uh, 1964. That was always their target date, from what I understand from marketing uh, information I got. I've been able to get about the Mustang. So. But anyway, I, I just thought that was something I wanted to share. I think it's a neat piece of history for Mustang enthusiasts because this was something that Ford put a lot of time, effort, and energy into. And I I have to look at the whole Ford Pavilion. It was something where the Mustang was introduced to the public. That's the you know that's that's home as it were for a lot of folks. And so I, I that's why it was important for us to reach out to you 
and you did such a marvelous job. Like I said, people look at that and they just they start to remember, oh yeah, this, this, and this, and they start to remember going there with their parents or going there with relatives or they're going there. There was a lot, a lot of, I guess, a lot of kids got out of school <laughs> during yeah. certain times because that was their field trips. I heard a lot of times they went on yeah. field trips, and so it was, it's yeah. it's it's an incredible piece. And like you said, it was international. But a lot of people really going, enjoyed going over to the transportation area and enjoying seeing the Mustang. So um, it's a big part of what we do. So I really want to thank you for that. That's uh, it's a big part of what we have here in the museum. So thank you. You're very welcome, Steve. It's, it's been my pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed listening to another episode of the Mustang Owners Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss any episodes. For more information on the museum, please go to mustangownersmuseum.com and you'll find additional information on upcoming events.